listener production. I have to take a moment to give my husband, Daz, a shout out. I did breakfast radio for a very long time, which is one of the best jobs you can have, except for the hours, because they are gruelling. I was up at 3.45am, you have to go to bed at a stupidly early hour, and in between, you're always exhausted and cranky, and the job just consumes every part of you. There's really nothing left in you. There's no reserves, right? So everybody had to work around me. My job dominated our house, our schedule, our relationship, and my beautiful Daz supported me every step of the way, emotionally and in a thousand practical ways every day. It's obviously just what you do as a partner, but, and I never intended it to be that way. It was sort of just the nature of the job. But I had this realization during that time probably not early enough in the course of my career, probably could have realised it earlier, but I realised that his needs were often not considered. And in fact, in a lot of ways, he was caring for me, but who was caring for him? This episode is about caring for the carer. In Australia, there are about 2.65 million carers. And obviously most are people caring in ways that are much more difficult than my fairly trivial situation. They're caring for people who are living with a mental illness or medical condition or living with a disability or maybe someone who is elderly. But equally, sometimes there are people who are caring in much more subtle ways like Daz. And today we want carers to be cared for. My co-host is Dr. Jamie Lee. Hi there, Jamie. Hey, Joe. Jamie, I would say that a lot of people who are carers don't actually even think of themselves as carers. You know, they're just people who happen to love someone who might need care. But what kind of toll do we see being a carer might take on someone? Caring for a loved one can strain even the most resilient of people. It is common for carers to experience both emotional and physical stress from the simple act, and I say simple, but it's not simple, of everyday caregiving. This can lead to changes in both the physical and the mental health that over time can really snowball. So it's common to feel resentment, anger, frustration, loneliness, isolation, exhaustion. You may experience anxiety. You may experience depression, irritability, have difficulty sleeping. Um, You can have trouble concentrating. And you may even notice drinking, eating and smoking more. Mm, Because I feel as though not only are you managing your loved one. So there's all of that physical and, you know, even just the daily, whatever the schedule is and all the, you know, people who are carers are very busy people, but they're also absorbing the worry that they have for the person that they love for. You know, they're absorbing whatever that person is going through. They've got to feel that in themselves as well. Yeah. Yeah. And if this is left unchecked, eventually the level of stress that accumulates and it can lead to burnout, which would mean that both the carer and the person that's being cared for will suffer. Well, as we said, there are lots of kinds of caring and our guest today is a pretty special kind. Rachel Mead is a writer and she's married to Andrew, who is a paramedic. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell us what Andrew's job is like for him? Being an emergency uh, health worker 
it it is incredibly stressful. He works very long shifts and uh, and a lot of night shifts as well. So his um, his schedule he has an eight day week, which is a bit unusual. There's he works two twelve hour day shifts and then two twelve hour night shifts, and then has four days off. So the um, while it is incredibly stressful, he does have the benefit of having um, a, a, a nice chunk of downtime at the end of it as well, which is completely necessary. But when he's at work, I, I mean, I can't even imagine what they're facing. What are they managing in a work day? It's really interesting because most people, when they call an ambulance, they're having the worst day of their lives. And that's um, all of that stress and trauma is just one instance in in a lifetime. Whereas paramedics have to um, show up and confront these situations sometimes, um, you know, ten to fifteen times in the space of one shift. So they're um, they're coming face to face with the, um, it's like a supercut of the worst day, <laughs> the worst um, situation mm. in a person's life. Yeah, but back to back for hours on end. And I know that, Jamie, your partner is a paramedic as well. Does, does that sound familiar to you? Oh, absolutely. My partner knows Andrew. Tom and Andrew have worked together before. Now, when I was a doctor, I saw pretty serious injuries, but it was not right at that chaotic moment when it first happened. Not too long ago, Tom and I were driving through regional Australia And we drove past an accident where the caravan and the ute had flipped over. And it was, was, you know, smoke was still going up. It was a bit of a shocker. Um, And so we pulled over to to help the two people. They had just crawled out of the car. They were covered in blood. And they were in this severe state of shock because they pretty much had lost all of their life's possessions in that caravan. And I saw Tom shift from the Tom, my partner, in this road trip to full paramedic mode. And it was like it was a different gear of absolute calm, focus and control as he treated these two people who who were hurt, they were scared, they were shocked. And what I realised afterwards that our paramedics like Andrew and Tom They see people at their worst, just Mm. as you were saying, Rachel. They're their most stressed. It's the worst moment in their lives. And not just that, it's in that immediate aftermath, just, Mm. you know, right after it's happened. And in order to manage this, they have to shut down their own senses in order to be able to control and be focused and to be calm. And any fear, any any anger, any shock that the, the paramedics might feel, they have to almost close it up so that they can do their job. And eventually this must just take such a huge toll on their mental health. Mm. Um, we live on a very windy road in the Adelaide Hills mm. and which is used as a racetrack um, by, by, ver- <laughs> by various people. And um, so, and I see a very similar thing that often we'll hear a car accident happen mm. and, and 
I you see Andrew click into paramedic mode, yeah. and yeah, it it is. You can you can see that gear change happen. It's not just mental; it's also emotional. Yeah. where they're having to um, block off the the sort of the empathetic yes. side of themselves and go completely into that analytical problem solving yeah. mode to allow them to actually deal with the problem as it's as it's playing out in front of them. Yeah, and yeah, and and it is. It's almost like seeing a different person in action. Yes. <laughs> a very um, a very cool and impressive person. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, but it's it's not the person that that you know from no. yeah from from dinner. Mm. <laughs> so so but yet that person is sitting down to dinner with you after potentially a twelve hour shift in in which they've seen the most horrific things. What is it like for you living with someone who is absorbing all of that in their daily job? Andrew's been doing this for now uh, just over 20 years and basically... The, the, when he comes home, that whole, how was your day, dear, just really doesn't cut it. <laughs> but you really do have to um, uh, basically ask questions that uh, that really dig beneath so that they're open questions so that they, um, they can't be answered with a simple yes or no. Because Andrew's a great storyteller and I think a lot of paramedics are really good storytellers and they've got this really dark, black, sort of sardonic sense of humour, which I think is also a bit of a coping mechanism. Absolutely. It allows them to... It allows them to really start talking about things but mm. um, present it in a very, oh, this is a funny anecdote sort mm. of way. And that is a wonderful opening. And so, and once that opening presents itself, then you can start asking them questions that start to dig a little bit below the surface of what was actually happening um, in terms of the medical side of things and start getting them to talk about all the other aspects like their their sensory responses to the situation mm. and their yeah and their emotional responses and how how it made them feel rather than what they did because Jamie we've spoken about before about how our body is keeping our emotions in us right so if Andrew doesn't talk about what he has seen and the feelings he felt at that time and what he's witnessed other people feel is that is that going to stay there in him? Yeah, there is a risk that it can cause more traumas or relational traumas in his body over time. Emotions are energy in motion. So when you feel all, any emotion, it needs to be able to run the course through your body. And if it's not allowed to be expressed because you can't, say you're a paramedic and you're doing a job where you cannot express your emotions, you cannot react to the horrors that you witness, you contain it within you so that you can do your job. And so then later, it, you need to be able to have an outlet to be able to express that. Otherwise, it gets stuck in the body through constrictions. Constrictions because when we experience pain, we will constrict our body to move away from the pain. And if we do that over and over again with multiple repeated movements, that will cause tightness in the body and also where that trauma can potentially sit and live and your emotions can get stuck there. Mm. So what an incredible thing that you're doing for him there, Rachel, by asking him to speak about the way he's feeling. But it must be extremely skilled too, because I know that there are many people who care for people with mental health issues specifically, 
And they have tried. They've tried to ask their loved one to speak and to share, and it's not always possible. That's a really good point. And often Andrew will hold it feeling he doesn't want to burden me with it. And that sort of flicks the onus back on me in a way to be able to reassure him that, no, 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 the consequences of him holding it in are worse than Mm. him feeling that he's burdening me with it. It's a constant conversation that we used to have. It's like reassuring each other that, no, no, it just needs to be out in the open. And we just, and it may not work perfectly each time the conversation happens, but, Mm -hmm. you know, just trying and trying again, eventually it will lessen and, yeah, it will come out. We talk about the body being a map to your mental well-being, and something that I think, Rachel, you do ingeniously is you ask him about his sensations Mm -hmm. and those sensations are clues to how he's feeling because they're physical. You're helping him reference his body and where those feelings where they're going, how they feel. And when you do that, it creates the space to understand his mental well-being as well as space for him to express his emotions. And I found in the past that often he struggles to find the language to Mm. speak about feelings, Mm -hmm. whereas speaking about bodily sensations Mm. is is much easier. Yes. yes, Because it's so much more physical. Yes. And that felt like a just a, a light bulb moment, I think, when I realised that, ah, that was the key. Mm. <laughs> That's the way in. Yeah. But, Rachel, I think you are an extraordinarily intuitive person and you must have very good listening skills because I don't think everybody is able to sit and inquire in that way. And I think the other thing you're doing is you're slowing down and actually taking the time to do it, which I think... We often don't give ourselves permission and actually put the emphasis on listening that you are doing. I'm also just really lucky in being a writer. I'm Mm. used to sitting on the periphery and observing, being able to come up with the questions to be able to elicit the answers where the person is doing the majority of the talking. (laughs) Yeah, those open questions. Yeah, that that did take a bit of practice. Mm. And it must also be a fine balance because when they go through such difficult work days, they they also just need time to decompress. This is what I've seen with Tom. He comes home and he needs that space in between work and home. Tom as a paramedic, Tom as a partner. And, And he needs that transition phase. And ever since we've started adding it into our own routine, that has been something very helpful. So he doesn't have to shift from like, super on and very focused to like, okay, I'm, I'm here with you. But on particularly bad days, I notice he needs even more time and more space. And how do you balance that with Andrew? Balancing, giving him the space that he needs to decompress. And then when do you know to go in mm. with some of the inquiry to help him process that? Yeah, that's a really good um, a really good question, and that is uh, completely down to experience as well, and mm. being able to read his demeanour, and mm. yeah, knowing that okay, no, he's not ready yet, <laughs> <laughs> needs a little bit more time in the shed, or yeah, mm. because that decompression time for Andrew, he needs the opportunity to switch his brain off 
medical work all together. Mm. And so he builds things and paints things. And that's the beauty of having those four days off is that he's able to completely distract himself or dive completely into another unrelated task. And often it's during those four days off that Mm. I will be able to talk to him about things and not straight away. Yeah. Mm. That's just fabulous, right? Because your brain, when it is in a focus mode, it's operating using one particular side of your brain or one particular part of your brain. And then when you allow yourself to go into these creative hobbies that it sounds like Andrew does, and I know he's so talented, just photography, he's making gin, like he does, he makes wooden boats, like so, so creative. But this operates a different part of his brain and allows him to switch from a state of focus to unfocus. And that is incredible because what he's unknowingly done is allowed him to completely de-stress and activate a different part of the mind that allows creativity, innovation, and promotes resilience and health. I think it's important to acknowledge that when we're thinking of other carers, not everybody gets to choose the lifestyle of a carer, I suppose. You know, you are married to someone, Rachel, who needs a considerable amount of care because of the job that he's chosen. And I don't know whether or not you you consciously decided to be married to a paramedic. (laughs) (laughs) But when you think about people whose loved one is suddenly sick or who is um, dealing with a mental health issue, Sometimes I imagine the carer feels like this is not what I signed up for. And Jamie, I can imagine that that is incredibly difficult to process. Yeah. And when one feels powerless in a situation, that is what leads to even more stress and more burnout. And so when you're in a situation like what you've described, Joe, and there is not much choice, the sense of powerlessness really comes into play there. And that can lead to the frustration and the buildup of resentment, Mm. which are very normal reactions. So what do we do about that? Because what what I'm loving about Rachel is that she's found a way to connect with Andrew's incredibly high pressure, high stress life Mm. and to care for him. But if I'm feeling powerless because I'm thrust into this life, what do I do? One, it's know that you need to look after yourself. Looking after you will allow you to be better physically and mentally for your own life, but also for caring for this person that you're looking after. And then the second thing would be acknowledging the things that you can control. What are the little things that you can control? You can control when you choose to go out for a walk. You can control the types of habits that you want to add into your life to stay physically and mentally well, such as sleeping well, having a good diet, going out for regular exercise. You can control reaching out for help. You can ask for family and friends to support you. Don't feel that you are alone and that you need to take on this burden all on your own. Mm, And I think to that... If you know someone in your life who is a carer for someone, 
It's, it's on us to actually volunteer as well, mm. don't you think? To, to be aware that people who are caring for someone may not feel like they can ask for help. Mm. And just recognising and acknowledging that someone is being a carer can actually really add that level of support that the carer might need. It's a huge amount of, of work that you're doing for him emotionally mm. and, and practically. So where does the care come for you? Do you feel like your needs are met whilst you're caring for him? Uh Mostly, yes. What I have in place for Andrew, I also have in place for myself. So I do have a list mm. of daily management things like getting exercise, mm-hmm. um, making sure, keeping an eye on my own drinking and overeating mm-hmm. and that sort of thing and making, um, you know, I've been, I've experienced periods of depression before. So, you know, I do see a psychologist regularly. And so I'm just, you know, make sure that I have my own checklist of management things do you feel at any point those feelings that Jamie described of, of resentment or um, even guilt that you want to care for yourself but you know he needs you or, you know, do, are there moments when you feel like this is having an impact on you that's really not pleasant? Uh, I am very aware of our entire household revolving around Andrew's job. <laughs> mm. So, and that has been a bit of an issue in the past that I've, I've felt that um, my identity is more as Andrew's wife rather than having a, a, a full and a robust identity of my own. Mm. So being a writer, I work from home. I have a very flexible schedule. So while it's easy for me to adjust to Andrew's schedule, sometimes it does feel as if that it's Andrew's schedule and life is sort of steamrollering over mine. So in those situations, um, I'm pretty bolshy about saying, mm-hmm. no, I, I need a writer's retreat. And, and I do, I also have my own uh, studio with a door that shuts because, mm. yeah, as much as I love the man, I used to have an office that didn't have a door and, yeah, that was just a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Get a door. Oh, yeah. Whatever you do, make sure you have a door. Yes, <laughs> preferably with a lock. Yeah. <laughs> this is great, but the fact is, I guess, when push comes to shove, if he needed you, you, you would have to drop everything for him. And again, to acknowledge people whose lives they're not able to separate themselves from that person that they care for. You know, I just think that that must be an enormous thing to manage around that sense of loss of who you are, Jamie. Like Mm. of just thinking, who even am I now? Because all I do is this thing. Yeah, am I just defined as the role of carer? Mm. And, you know, reflecting on what you said, there is a risk of feeling unseen, And when you feel unseen by your partner or your family member who you love and and you see them and you see them when they're vulnerable and they don't see you the way you desire to be seen, that can lead to some deep loneliness. And here, so I've got a little theory though. So we've spoken about, you know, the the two two and a half million plus Australians who may be in that situation where they're caring maybe 24-7 for someone mm. who really, really needs it. And gosh, those people are courageous and resilient and I have huge amount of respect and love for them and I mm. hope that we all know to care for those people. Mm. And then uh, there's people such as yourself, Rachel. And then I reckon on the other end of the spectrum, all of us have micro moments of caring for someone in our life that we may not have chosen. 
to do. Like, you know, just because you're a partner or you're a child of someone and you have a parent that needs caring for or, you know, maybe you're a parent or whatever it might be. And I think if you're not caring for yourself at the same time, that's when you start to get resentful. And I see it in in parents who have new babies mm. and they become oddly resentful about their loss of self or you know, like it's in all of us that we start going, but what about me? Mm. Don't you think? Mm, yeah. And, and in relationships as well, right? You and your partner will take turns going through tough times, going through mm-hmm. ups and downs, and you will often swap roles and play a bit of that m- micro caring role. But when it extends for a little bit longer, you can feel, oh, no, 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 hold on. What about me? What about mm. me? Yeah. So mm. the answer there is to be able to express your needs, I guess, mm. and say, I, I need to, or even do it for yourself. Like, okay, well, I've been caring for you and I will continue to that, do that, but now I have to step in. And like you say, Rachel, you find ways to ensure that you are, your self-care is intact. Yes. And I'm lucky in that I have a network of, of really close girlfriends that I know see me for who I am. Mm. <laughs> completely aside from my relationship to Andrew and and my role as a carer for him. So knowing that I'm I'm seen by other people who I'm close to as a an individual and a person and a yeah that's um, with my own identity aside from my identity as a wife is really important. But I also have to make sure that it's not just about how um it's about how I see myself as well. Mm-hmm. I generally just have a try and institute a little moment in each day where I try and do something for myself. Mm. <laughs> it sounds a bit silly, but what I do is I think back to how I was as a little girl imagining what I was going to be like when I was grown as a woman. Mm-hmm. And I think about ways in which I can do something each day that reflects what that little girl thought <laughs> the woman she would grow into would be, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So yeah, right. even yeah. if it's just something really simple like um, riding my bike to the shops or uh, rather than driving the car or going on a walk on a new path. Mm-hmm. So something that sort of reflects my own identity rather than anybody else's conception of me. I guess. Mm, yeah. I love this. You know, Rachel, I'm so inspired. I'm so inspired because you, you've you discovered this through trial and error, through connecting with yourself. That's incredible. Because, oh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we don't receive training on how to be a carer. No. There's very little out there. No, that's true. And we don't value it as a, as no. a society either. So, um, which is terrible, I think, that we do need to have a bit of a revolution in that way, that mm. when we we value people, when we look at their income or their social status, mm. whereas what we really need to do is value people who care and nurture mm. and are creative and, you know, does have, bears absolutely no resemblance to how much money they make. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So I think, though, Jamie, we need to give people permission to feel the really average parts of being a carer because mm. this series about is about being the best of you, mm. but we can't always be the best versions of ourselves, can we? No, no. If you're a carer, it's it's important to give yourself permission today to to feel some of those negative emotions. It's okay to feel 
guilty. It's okay to feel anger. It's okay to feel that resentment and give yourself permission mm. to feel that. I mean, if that's sort of starting to feel like it's overcoming us, mm. I suppose that's a sign mm-hmm. to do something more proactive around that. Yes. Yes. And, and it would be, you know, firstly, it's acknowledging it without judgment. And I think that's the key, Joe. Allow yeah. yourself to feel these emotions without judgment. And then give yourself permission to do something for just you, to look mm. after yourself and also to be able to reach out for help. Yeah. Well, let's uh, see that as our challenge today, to really be aware to those in our communities who are caring, um, in our families who are caring, because sometimes you're not even aware that they're doing it. Hello, Daz. i got a, a shout out <laughs> to you again. You know, that you sort of got to be awake to the people that are caring for you and also um, step in and care for those who are caring. And say thank you. Oh, nice. Oh, yes. <laughs> and simply say thank you. <laughs> well, do you know, I say thank you to you, Rachel, and to you, Jamie, for caring for our paramedics because where would we be without them? Oh, mm. well, thank you. And yes, very true. <laughs> Well, that brings this season of Best of You to an end. For more conversations that are all about finding ways to be the best versions of ourselves, even in the hardest of times, check out Best of You Season 1. In that season, my co-host is Emma Murray, mindfulness and peak performance coach to elite athletes. And our guests are some of Australia's best sports stars, sharing some very personal challenges. Best of You was created in collaboration with The House of Wellness. Written and presented by me, Joe Stanley, and my co-host, Dr. Jamie Lee, executive producer, Alex Mitchell, and audio production by Nicola Sitch. Listener.